Well, friends, it is a joy to be here and to open up God's holy word for us this morning. Would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful letter written from the Apostle Peter as he pastors our church. We get to tap in and have Peter pastor us through the Holy Spirit. So we're in good hands this morning as we read his word. So let us be leaning in. Let's ask the Lord to renew our minds as we come and hear his word again. This is a significant moment for us every Sunday when we read and preach God's holy word. There's nothing like it in our week. And so let's lean in. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's join together in prayer. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was struck by a line in a book that we were given at the pastor's conference written by Carolyn Mahaney, the wife of C.J. Mahaney, who's the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches. She's written a new book uh, called True Life, Lessons from the Book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, And I would highly encourage when it comes out, I'll probably buy it for all the ladies in the church because it's going to be one of those books that will just change your life. Uh, And in the book, as I was reading it with Maddie on Monday, Carolyn Mahaney makes this remark. You see, much of our trouble comes from the fact that we misunderstand the way life truly is. We expect that if we have enough heart and ambition, we can achieve our highest goals, only to be confused and disillusioned when our plans go belly up. This isn't the way my life was supposed to go, we cry. To which Solomon tells us, with a shake of his head, this is exactly the way life goes. It's not, that our, li- it's not our life that's gone off the rails, but our expectations. We are the ones who got it wrong, who mistakenly thought the bus of life was headed on a garden tour instead of into a war zone. What's your expectation for your life as a Christian? Where do you think the Lord, when you got on the bus, is taking you? A garden tour or a war zone? 
The letter of 1 Peter was written to readjust our expectations for the Christian life. We've been told that we're exiles. We're not home on earth anymore. As we've followed Christ, we're now at odds with the world. And therefore, we ought to expect a war zone, not a garden tour. Yet so often for myself and perhaps you as well, our expectations and, ho- and hopes for our life, even our Christian life, are comfort and peace and satisfaction in this world. This passage is a summons to change our way of thinking and to adjust our expectations. In fact, this whole letter of 1 Peter has been beating this drum note the whole way through. This passage has one basic command with two supporting ideas to reinforce it, and that will be our points for today. The command, point one, the conflict, point two, and the conclusion, point three. And my hope is, is that for all of us, we'd, we'd be leaving today arming ourselves with the resolve to suffer rather than sin as we follow Christ. It's not what we want to hear, but it's what the Holy Spirit needs us to hear today. So let's dive into our text and study it for ourselves. Point number one, the command. Look at verse one again with me, just the first bit there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Uh, Those first two words indicate and give us clues that Paul is building on an argument he's already made. Since, therefore, he's saying, okay, I'm now applying what we've just heard. So to understand this passage today, we need to just track back a little bit and remind ourselves that in chapter 3, verses 14, um, we started hearing that there's going to be a distinct possibility that you and I might suffer even for doing good and that the world is against us, and that as we live for Jesus, we've got to be ready to give a hope for our faith, we've got to do it with gentleness and respect, but suffering will likely come, if it's God's will. Then in verses 18 to 22, we saw last week that Peter wanted to paint a picture for us to look at in the midst of our suffering so that we don't lose hope. He showed us the picture of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, his victory over Satan's sin and death on our behalf, and said, look at Christ's victory, that's your victory. So even though you're suffering, okay, that's to be expected because who went before you? Oh, the one who suffered in the flesh. But his suffering didn't end on a down note. It ended in the highest note possible with everything subjected to him. And so because he wins, we will win. But that victory isn't yet. And so Peter, the wise pastor, says, since therefore. So now he's moving um, from this beautiful picture from inspiration last week now to application this week. And in verses 1 to 6, Peter is telling us to actively prepare ourselves to suffer for the sake of Christ. In this passage, he's addressing our minds, our self-conception, our worldview, our, our very way in which we conceive of the future of our life, how we're meant to think life will look, our, our expectations. So let's listen to the command in verse 1 and 2 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Here, Peter is calling us as followers of Christ to make a resolution. He's telling us to do something with our minds, to arm our minds with a way of thinking, a resolve, a standing, a thought process. He's saying, equip your mind. You know, imagine you can bolt things in or put add-ons or install apps in your head. That's what he's saying. This is what you need to do. Install this app right now. What is the app? What's the mindset? Well, it's the same way of thinking that Jesus had. That is just like Christ was resolved in his life to obey the will of God no matter what, even if that meant suffering. So too, we are to resolve to suffer just like him as we follow him. Commentator Karen Job said it like this, reflecting on having the same mind of Christ. Repeatedly throughout his life, Jesus had to embrace his calling, even though it meant the suffering of being misunderstood, rejected, and finally tortured to his death. His full humanity meant that although he was tempted to sin and thereby to renounce his calling, which we see in the garden, we see in his temptation from Satan, he constantly had to decide to obey God and suffer the consequences. That's what it means to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. It's military, martial language. It's, it's war zone, not garden tour. Too often we view the world from a peacetime perspective, even as Christians, though I think the illusion is, is fading on us. He's actually already had this idea for us earlier in 1 Peter. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 13, he said to us, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, or literally, gird up the loins of your mind, that is, grab your tunic and hold it up so you can run. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's already instructed us, this kind of fills out what this arming ourselves means. When Peter says, arm yourself, he's not talking about taking up physical weapons. Peter did that, if you remember, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He drew a sword, cut off Malchus's ear, and Jesus said, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. We're not to take up arms for the name of Christ. I was recently watching a Christian talk show, just to see, because it had a it had a title that interests me. And I clicked on the YouTube link, and the first minute and a half, I kid you not, was an advertisement for a bulletproof vest. And it was, in the world of tyranny, we must rise up and fight against tyrants. Da, 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 da. And it was promoting bulletproof vests, a really lightweight, great bulletproof vest made by Christians, basically saying to guys, you know, get ready, there's going to be a war. That's not what Peter is saying to us. He is saying, arm yourselves in your mind. Take up arms in your head. Resolve, equip yourself, install the app, prepare yourself, renew your mind with a resolve that I will suffer for the sake of Christ if it comes. 
saying to yourself, I am willing and prepared, if the situation calls, to stand for Christ no matter what, even if that means suffering like Christ suffered for me. And Peter adds to that resolve to suffer with an extra element. Look at the rest of verse 1 and 2. So, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the command. Reason, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Summary, arm yourself with a resolve to suffer rather than sin as you follow Christ. So he adds to the call to suffering with a resolve that I will not follow the way of sin any longer. When the choice comes between suffering and sin, I choose suffering as I follow my Savior. I choose suffering rather than compromise. Now, you might be wondering, what does that mean when Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? It should make you ask that question. If you weren't, think, if you weren't asking it, you should be asking it. Is he teaching somehow that suffering purges our sinful nature? No. Uh, plenty of people suffer lots and sin lots in their suffering. So what does he mean? Well, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, I think it gives us a clue to what Peter is talking about. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, and this is again pointing to Christ as our example in suffering, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which just pausing there is great news for us this morning. Application that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased for sin. Jesus suffered in the flesh. And so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What I think Peter is saying is that for those who truly follow Jesus, they have left their sinful life behind them. They are dead to sin. The old way of living, the old passions, the old lust, the old comforts, the old satisfaction, the old way of viewing life as a garden tour where you ought to expect and receive benefit and satisfaction, that's dead. I'm dead to that. Now I've got a new way of living, a new expectation, a new pattern. And the proof of our conversion in those moments is that we choose to suffer rather than sin. I've made a break with my old life. I will not go back there. I'm with Christ no matter what. And therefore, the proof is I'd suffer rather than falling back into my old pattern. It's the difference between a babysitter and a parent. A babysitter, if there's an emergency, um, they might be really great, loving babysitter. They'll call the parent uh, and they'll say, there's an emergency, your child is bleeding. And you're like, okay, we're coming home. And the babysitter does all they can and maybe calls the ambulance, whatever, and waits with the, with the child until the parents are there. But then the, the babysitter goes home. But the parent, the parent stays with the child and the parent's going to be with the child through whatever suffering, through whatever cost to see their child back into full health again. Well, as Christians, we're called uh, to not be like the babysitter with Christ. Oh, we're with Christ where things are nice and fun, we're playing games, but when there's an emergency, we're out. No, no, we're, it's like we're the parent. We're, we're resolved to be with Christ and we're with Him to the end. So, here's the command that Peter wants to give us. Arm yourself 
with the resolve to suffer rather than sin. We have to put this mindset on because our flesh will daily, weekly, monthly, yearly work against us. We have to arm ourselves. It's our duty to re-baptize our minds into this way of uncomfortable thinking. So friends, a, a question for you to reflect on. Do you have this built into your expectations for your life? Do you see this life mainly as a garden tour with a few bumps, potholes? Or are you aware that it's actually a war zone? Not against flesh and blood primarily, but spiritual forces of evil. Have you armed yourself with this way of thinking? Are you resolved that no matter what, if you're with Jesus, no turning back, no turning back? How do we arm ourselves with this way of thinking? If our, if our flesh isn't going to do it, if our natural world isn't going to help us to do it, well, here's some practical recommendations. I, I've got a number here because I, I want us to uh, continue to do this. I think the, the letter of 1 Peter has been doing this for us. So just keep coming to church and you'll be armed each week because Peter won't let it up. But here's some other ways. Uh, firstly, arm yourself by learning from the life of Christ. Uh, he paints P Jesus as an example in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So how did Christ think about his life? Well, Peter's already told us in 1 Peter chapter 2, 20 to 24. Let's just have a look at that because we can use Peter's letter to teach us. So arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Here, Peter shows us the mind of Christ. So what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, so that's suffering for unrighteousness. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There's an expectation shift. For to this, you have been called. You know, we talk about, I feel called to do this. <laughs> I feel called to this new job or this new house. Or <laughs> okay, do you feel called into suffering? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what is the example? Well, then he outlines it. Firstly, he committed no sin. So arm yourself for this way of thinking, like Christ, I will not sin in my suffering. I will resolve to not sin in my suffering. Obviously, we won't do it perfectly, but at least at the outset, we're going to make that commitment. Secondly, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, I'm not going to lie my way to get out of suffering. Thirdly, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Okay, so if I suffer for the cause of Christ, I'm not going to fight back with my enemies. I'm not going to do what Peter did and lop off an ear. I'm not going to put on my bulletproof vest and go on a, you know, a tour. <laughs> and fourthly, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Entrust yourself to God. That's how Jesus, that's what he did in the garden. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So we learn from Christ. If you want to know how to suffer, 
take up the mind of Christ. And Peter's given us an example, outlined it for us here in God's Word. Secondly, arm yourself by learning from the teaching of Christ. We don't often memorize verses like this as our life verse. Luke 6, 21, or 22, sorry. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, that is, on account of Jesus himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Verses like this need to be operationalized in our life. Who knows? Like I said last week, Australia might experience revival and we might have no need for this cause of suffering because many, many hearts turn to Christ, many, many institutions turn to Christ and we actually enter a golden era. But if the trajectory continues, it's not looking like that. And so we need to be prepared to rejoice. Jesus tells us, you're blessed. So we need to download that app and go, okay, this is good. This is a gracious thing. Thirdly, we need to arm ourselves by looking to the cross of Christ. So we arm ourselves by looking to the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and actually looking at the cross of Christ itself. Our memory verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Seeing Christ on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice, seeing that the swap is taking place on that cross, that our filthy lives are swapped for his perfect righteousness, that he would bring us to God meditating on the cross, meditating on the gospel, seeing the Savior placarded before our eyes will motivate us and help us to bear the cross for His sake. It will be hard for us to turn from the cross and turn away from Christ. So let the sparks of the cross fall on you daily so that if and when you're put in an you know, abrupt moment, a moment where you've got to choose, will I stand up for Christ or back down? Will I name Christ or will I keep silent? You've got the, the cross emblazoned in your mind. You think, he suffered for me. How could I not bear reproach for his name in this moment? Another way we can arm ourselves is by looking to other followers of Christ for inspiration and example reading great biography and stories. Now, this week, I took Evie out for a daddy-daughter date. Um, we do them every couple of weeks. And we were at Macca's. And so it was non-glorious. She's chowing down on a big brekkie burger. So it's about the size of her head. I don't know how she fits it all in. And I said, well, why don't we read this book together? And um, I'd recently got a free copy on Kindle of this book called Radiant, 50 Remarkable Women in Church History. And so she's chowing down on this massive burger, which has the hash brown in it and two patties and bacon, and she's going for it. And I'm reading the story of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. Um, I don't know if you know their story, the story they started Voice of the Martyrs, but I want to tell it to you today because I was a mess. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to read this story to her and I'm crying and she's eating this burger and it's not affecting her, but I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I have to keep pausing and she's kind of like embarrassed. <laughs> So in 
During World War II, as Germany occupied Romania in Europe, they began rounding up all the Jews. And as you know from world history, uh, they executed thousands and thousands of Jewish Romanians. Sabina's entire family was executed, but she was spared. And then, in the turn of affairs, a million Russian soldiers entered into Romania and drove out the Germans. And so replaced Nazi rule with communist dictatorship with Stalin as the leader. They were hell-bent on driving out Christianity in their pursuit of godless communism. And so they took over the church buildings. They only allowed preachers to preach if they got a license from the government. The Wormbrands had been converted to Christ at some time in this point, And they wanted to stand against this regime. So taking their life into their own hands, they would go into crowded public places and stand up quickly and begin to preach the gospel to their countrymen and then disappear into the crowd as the guards came to them. They would do this time after time. Richard was a pastor. They continued to meet as a church. Many encouraged them to flee, but they chose to stay. In order to control the church, the communists organized a a big congregation of all the ministers to meet in parliament. 4,000 bishops and elders, all gathered in the beautiful hall of parliament in Romania with a, a huge banner of Stalin right in the middle. And they were forcing all the churches to get on board with the communist regime. That really, communism and Christianity has so much in common. If you just leave out certain aspects of Christianity, we can live at peace. We have similar goals. We want to help the poor. We want to have an equal society. And one by one, under fear of imprisonment, torture, and death, leader after leader praised the new communist government, declaring that communism and Christianity shared similar goals. Sitting in that meeting were Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. Sabina turned to her husband with flaming eyes and furrowed brow saying, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. If I do so, Richard whispered, you lose your husband. To which Sabina replied, I don't want to have a coward as a husband. So Richard arose and walked to the podium, requested permission to speak, and looking out over the sea of faces, spoke into the microphone, which broadcast the message into the whole country and said, it is our duty as ministers to glorify Christ. Our loyalty is due first to Him and not to earthly powers. The audio was cut. The meeting was over in an uproar. A number of days later, as he was walking to church, he was arrested Soon after, his wife was arrested, even though she continued to preach the gospel and keep the church going in that time. He was tortured for numbers of years. She was tortured for numbers of years, separated from her daughter. 
Enduring this after a starvation diet, a solitary, in solitary confinement, the guards came to her and said, Mrs. Wormbrand, you're only 36 years old. The best of a woman's life are before you. Why do you refuse to cooperate with us? You could go free tomorrow if you'd only give us the names of these traitors. Then they promised to release her and her husband, provide them with money and good jobs if they would just give them information. And she replied, thanks, but I've sold myself already. The Son of God was tortured and gave his life for me. Through him, I can reach heaven. Can you offer a higher price than that? She was thrown back into torture and imprisonment. Friends, they were able to do this because they armed themselves with the resolve if the day would come to suffer rather than sin as they follow Christ. They were ordinary Christians in an ordinary church and the history, the tide of history changed. And they were ready by God's grace. We need stories like that as as part of our possible future history for us. We, We have no idea what the Lord would have for us. We need wives like Sabina who would elbow their husbands and say, don't be a coward, stand for Christ. We need husbands like Richard who would stand up for the sake of Christ, even if it means destroying their family and separating them for years and years and putting his family in danger. Because rather to suffer than sin as we follow Christ. So friends, have you armed yourself? The day may come. The day may come for myself as I preach the gospel and stand for the Christian ethic where at the very best we get cancelled somehow, but perhaps more. We must arm ourselves together. But this will not be easy, obviously, and Peter knows this, and so it leads to our next section, the next part of our text. So we've seen the command to arm ourselves to resolve to suffer rather than sin as we follow Christ. Now, secondly, he shows us the conflict that will come. Point two, the conflict. So reading from verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, verse three, four, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is saying, you've lived that life long enough, you can't go back there. It's obvious that the Christians that Peter was preaching to were not goody two-shoes, they had a sordid history. Christianity was no pleasant like worldview upgrade to an already moral and decent life. No, Christianity was an about-face turn for these guys. Not much has changed. Godless society goes headlong into sin, the same as the first century, as the 21st century. Now it's just on Netflix as a normal TV show. But it's the same heart. And perhaps you can resonate with this list because it's a good description of your life before coming to Christ. Sadly, many of these elements were true in my life, even as I was a youth group kid who claimed to know Christ but was living a life of secret sin. 
until the Lord convicted me deeply of my sin at age 16. This is part of my story. And so he brings up this contrast, this former way of life, as a motivation to remind them, you've already had enough of this old way. Now is the time to choose the God way. Don't go back there. And if you're a Christian and you're tempted, he's saying, don't go back. The time, it's, you've had enough. A new way is before you. If you have to choose between the old ways and indulging in sin or suffering but having Christ, choose Christ. But if you choose Christ, conflict will come. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Commentator Karen Jobes paints the picture of what it was like for the first century Christians. Pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which the Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theatre with its risque performances, the chariot races, the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. Basically every show on streaming platforms. Christians also condemn the pleasures of indulgent temper, sex outside marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness and theft. These attitudes toward contemporary Roman customs and morals combined with the Christians' refusal to burn incense to the emperor, a gesture of civic gratitude intended to ensure the well-being of the empire, earned Christians the reputations of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. We're not so different, are we? You won't burn incense to the idols of our culture. You'll be hated. At best, unbelievers are surprised when we don't join in the old ways. And it's not very difficult to surprise them. All we have to do is simply and humbly stand for a gospel-inspired sexual ethic. Just go to work and say, I believe that sex is only for within marriage. And by the way, I believe that marriage is for one man and one woman for one lifetime. That will engender no degree of small surprise. At best. But when we stand for Christ and with Christ, we can expect the, the surprise to move to conflict. Peter says, they malign you. So this isn't state-sponsored persecution. This is interpersonal hatred, anger, frustration that we may encounter, that the, these Christians encounter. If you stand against abortion in a conversation, expect hatred not mild indifference. If you stand against porn in a group of guys, expect ridicule. If you decide not to go to that party or watch that movie or listen to that style of music, expect scorn. If you won't participate in the office gossip and politics, choosing to stand up for the person not present in the room, expect surprise and most likely some form of offence to come and your name to be brought up next when you're not there. If you choose not to laugh at a racist or sexist joke, expect some kind of negative reaction. And even more, if you start to try and win your neighbours, 
co-workers, family members for Christ and gently and humbly share the good news of Christ to them? Well, get ready for it. Expect some kind of reaction, surprise, if not maligning and scorn. And so Peter's saying conflict is coming if you stand for Christ. So be ready for it. We need to arm ourselves with the mindset of choosing to suffer rather than sin. Now, I think there's some groups who are most likely to experience this maligning. Firstly, a new Christian. If you're new to following Christ and you were running in the old ways and now you've turned to Christ, expect those in your former life to be very confused about what you're doing. Expect as you reach out to friends and see them saved for the gospel that you've got to teach them, if you become a Christian, things will get tough. Surprise and malign will accompany you. Arm yourself. Secondly, I think Christians who are working in public roles or the public sector ought to expect this kind of surprise and maligning. We saw recently with the, the newly one-hour-long appointment of the AFL club president who had to resign because they found out he was a, basically just a normal Christian and went to a normal Christian church. If you're in any leadership position in a school like some of you are, you're in a public role, expect this conflict. Or if you're a public servant, you work for the government, the, the regime of our government is not on board with the cause of Christ, and so there's going to be moments where you butt heads. They don't want you to preach the gospel on government time. Expect it. Thirdly, Christians who are working in particularly unholy environments ought to arm themselves readily each and every week. You know, if you're a, you know, a, an office worker in a small family-owned business that's generally moral and decent, it, it's probably not going to be in your face this week. But if you work in an environment that is just big on partying or big on some of these sins listed here, every week you've got to prepare yourself because you're going back in to the war zone. And so these verses are helpful for us. It, it builds our expectation. And it's vital that you arm yourself. Get ready. But there's also a possibility that some of us here are rarely experiencing any of this conflict. It could be for a variety of reasons. But I thought I'd mention three potential negative reasons why you might be sheltered from any of this. Um, as a way of just assessing your heart, you think, I'm not getting any of this conflict for Christ. And it might be for all legitimate reasons and you're doing nothing wrong, so it's not a guilt trip. But there may be some who are avoiding it for three reasons. Number one, your life is too similar. They're not surprised or maligning you because you're joining in. You're just like them. You're so relevant to the culture that you're just like the culture. There's nothing distinctive or offensive about your life because you're too similar. And maybe you need to consider, have I, be, have I been co-opted by the world rather than confronting the world? We're not talking about going to work and being like, you sinners! That's, that's, not, that's not the approach of Peter. The approach of Peter is with gentleness and humbleness. You shine, you live for Christ, you abstain from sin, you don't make a big deal. But maybe your life is too similar. And you need to ask, 
Have I chosen to sin rather than suffer? Well, the good news is, is that if that's you, you can repent. You can confess your sins to the Lord and be forgiven. You can ask Him for the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to arm yourself with a resolve to suffer, and then you can go to work different on Monday. You don't have to be destroyed by condemnation. That's not, we're not here to condemn today. We're here to relieve condemnation and say, it's okay, you're a sinner, so am I. Repent and then ask your growth group, ask people in your life and say, I'm way too similar to my colleagues. I need help to change. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to pretend. We can just be real. Secondly, you might not be experiencing any of this conflict because your life is too secret. You're not really participating, but no one really knows you're a Christian. Your neighbors don't know, your family barely knows, your colleagues don't know. You're just living a good life, hoping that they'll ask you a question at some point in the next decade about your beliefs. What'd you do on the weekend? Oh, I had a nice time. Yeah, I um, met with my family and you know, slept in. Okay. No one's ever going to find out, are they? <laughs> do your colleagues... Your bosses, your friends, your neighbors actually know that you love Jesus? Or would they be completely shocked to walk in on a Sunday and see you down the front jumping around? Maybe you're too soft and the approach isn't drawing any reaction because it's just too secret. Well, perhaps it's time by the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up and stand out for Christ in a gentle and respectful and beautiful way, but you need to let the secret out. Thirdly, maybe your life is just too secluded. You're in the Christian ghetto. Now you work from home, you go to life group in church, you do shopping with your AirPods in. Basically, you've got no meaningful contact for any conflict with unbelievers because your life is too secluded. And perhaps for you, to arm yourself is to get ready to re-enter the world. We need to arm ourselves with a resolve to stand out and suffer for Christ and with Christ rather than live in sin, in secret or in seclusion. Because our world needs us to stand up and stand out for Christ. They need us to do it because they need to see Christ. They need the gospel. And that leads to our final point, the conclusion. So we've seen the command, arm yourself. The conflict, if you do, get ready. But what's the end game? Well, point three, the conclusion. Peter outlines the fate of those who would follow their sin rather than follow Christ. Verse five, harrowing verses. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is not a ha-ha moment. This is, this is heaven and hell. This is the reality that those who mock Christ and mock you for following Him will experience the most horrifying experience anyone can face. To be before our God, a consuming fire, bare naked with all their sins, and have nothing to answer for all of their sin in all of their life. They will have to give an account. They will have to detail to God why they have lived their life the way that they've lived, and then, after that, face judgment. 
and a verdict. This is terrible news. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet you know, followed Christ, then this is horrible news for you this morning. You too will give an account for your life and you too will be judged. And so I want you to consider, am I prepared for that day of accounting and that day of judgment? Even if you think there's a 10% chance this verse might be true, it is worth giving serious attention to it because it has eternal consequences. Can I plead with you, if you are not sure that you can pass that test, then get sure today. And the way to get sure, well, Peter outlines it in verse 6. Even though it's a bit of a confusing verse, he says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This verse isn't saying that a second chance after death is offered to those to hear the gospel and then choose Christ. No, upon death, you will be held account and you'll be judged. That's the whole point of verse 5. There's no second chance. What he's saying in verse 6 is he's meeting the, the feeling that Christianity hasn't worked. You know, in the ancient world, they, they believed that there was no accountability after death. And so all these people that had abstained from sin as Christians and died, it would have looked like, well, what a waste. What a hopeless way of living. And so Peter's saying, this is why the gospels preach even to those who are dead, not that they're those who are now dead, who were Christians. They have hope because the gospel changes their life fills them with the Spirit and gives them eternal life. So the hope is, is that if you believe in the gospel before you die, death is not the end. You will pass through that judgment. And like we sung, the great chorus will be, it was finished on the cross. And the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what awaits us. It might look like suffering. It might look like conflict. It might look like we lose, because we do. It's a war zone, not a garden tour, but that's not the end. The conclusion is we will be raised in the Spirit the way Christ was raised in the Spirit, and we will enter into eternal glory and bliss. And this can be yours today for certain. Certain. No more guessing, no more doubting, no more wondering, am I good enough? No, today you can know forever that you are good with God if you put your faith in Christ. And if you haven't done that officially, I'll do it during the song. Repent of your sin and just say, Lord, I want to follow you. I don't know exactly what that means, but I, I love you. I need you. I need forgiveness for my sins. Pray something that your heart prays. And don't worry, the Holy Spirit will help you pray. And you can become a Christian today. So friends, what's your expectation for life? Garden tour or war zone? Peter's leaning in again and saying, friends, be prepared. Resolve. I will suffer with Christ rather than sin. 
That's my resolution. That's my statement of fact. That's what I will do no matter what. And even if we never experience outright persecution like the Richard and Sabina, this is what we have to prepare ourselves with because we don't know. Things can change very quickly. And we can do this not by the strength of our resolution. No, no. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who had come with us and strengthened us to live out that resolve. We don't muster up the power to get through this kind of suffering. There's no way you or I could do it. It wasn't like Richard and Sabina Wormbrand were just really, really special people. No, no, no. They trusted in a special God who empowered them to do it. And we have all the resources that they had to do the exact same thing if the time would come. If only we would call out to Christ. Let us do that now in prayer and respond in singing, making this our prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be resolved. To arm ourselves with this same way of thinking. That we would choose to suffer rather than sin. To go with Christ rather than our old life, no matter what. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, if anyone is here that hasn't yet chosen to follow Christ, would you convict them of their sin right now? And lead them to yourself, please, God, that they may escape their sure and final judgment and instead receive full pardon of their sins and the promise of eternal life. God, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. We will fall back into sin. We will give in to the fear and the temptation and the pleasures. So God, help us this week to live for Christ no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.